The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I have a kind of a weird fascination with unusual jobs and occupations. Like the things that people do for a living that maybe not very many other people do. And so um, I came across one recently that was very, I mean, just I didn't even know existed. And maybe if you're considering a career change, this might be a possibility for you. Um, This job is an actual job out there. It is called Odor Tester. This is a job you work for a company that's creating products and you work in their marketing department, you probably have some kind of chemistry background and training, some kind of degree, and your job is actually, they recreate the, the product, and your job is to, sm- like you're smelling it all day, you smell these various products that they're putting out to make sure that it is appealing for the consumer or effective for the consumer. So this could be a good situation or a bad situation, okay? So before you say, look, my job, it's, I have a kind of a messy job, it's kind of complicated, before you jump to this, this job, you're going to want to know the full possibilities of what you might find yourself getting into. On one side, you might work for a perfume company. Oh, it's not so bad, smelling perfume all day. They have a new line coming out. You help them discern if that's the right scent. Um, You also, this could be good or bad, you also might work for a company that puts out microwavable dinners. You might test them and cook them and then smell them afterwards to see if it's going to be appealing to the consumer, be appetizing. If you have cooked a microwavable dinner recently, you know that we need more odor testers in that department. But also literally like the companies that are coming out with like, say, for example, a scented trash bag. You ever seen one of those scented trash bags like you put in the kitchen or whatever? Like there's someone that has to field test that from an odor standpoint. They've got to fill it with trash and make sure it's effective. So before you jump careers, you want to consider all the possibilities. You, that is, could be a pretty messy job you might find yourself doing. Now, most of us might say, look, the labor that I do for my job, it's not that complicated. It's not that messy. It's normal. But there's something else about my job that makes it a messy situation. And I think for some of us, maybe most of us, you might be saying, look, the messy part of my job is I don't know how to be in the work environment that I'm in and be a Christian. I don't know how to, to, to try and be a Christian in this environment that the things that I'm exposed to, things I'm a part of, the things that my company is, the company that I'm a part of is doing and believes in. Sometimes it's a messy situation. I don't know how to be a part of that. Now, maybe you're here and you say, look, I'm, I'm not Uh, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a Christian, but I have questions about Jesus and about following after Jesus and what that looks like. I think this this might be helpful to discern what is it going to look like to follow after Jesus because we're going to find ourselves in messy situations. And it's not just in the place that we work. For some of you, you might say, look, the messy situation for me is the family that I'm in. I don't know how to continue going to these extended family gatherings and, and continue to be a Christian in an environment that's kind of antagonistic Christianity. Or maybe it's the school you go to or the class that you're in. And there's a professor or a teacher that you're like, man, I don't know how to operate in this environment. Or maybe it's your friend group and you're like, look, I, don't, I had these friends before I started following Jesus and 
and we used to do things together. Now I don't want to do those things anymore, but I don't want to just leave my friends, but I don't know how to operate in that environment. It's kind of messy. And so if that's where you find yourself in, and I, I think most of us do to some degree, this passage that we're going to look at, this book of the Bible, I think is going to be really helpful because as messy as we find our lives in, it's probably not as messy as the situation a guy by the name of Daniel found himself in in the Bible. Specifically, we're looking in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Um, We're going to look in chapter one and we're going to spend some time there in the next several weeks looking at how he operated as a guy that was trying to follow after God in the messy environment he found himself in. We're looking at Daniel chapter one, starting in verse one. It's going to be up here on the screens. We're going to just jump right into the story and then we'll back out and get a little context of what's happening. This is the beginning of the book of Daniel. It goes like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God, um, with, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. All right, now pause here with me for a second, because our initial reading of this It may just sound like, okay, well, if I lived in Jerusalem at that time, man, that would have been kind of scary. The Babylonians besieging the city that I'm living in. And yes, that's true. But there's a lot more going on here that makes this one of the biggest shifts in the entire story of the Old Testament. Those verses that we just read, it's a monumental cataclysmic shift that's happening in the entire narrative that starts in Genesis and ends all the way in Malachi. This entire story in the Old Testament before we get to Christ, this is, these, those verses is one of the biggest shifts. And here's why. To kind of put this, let's put this in historical perspective. It, to put it in, in, in history, the Babylonians right now, the ones who just conquered Jerusalem in those verses, they're the world power. The next world power will be the Persians and then the Greeks. This is happening about uh, 605 BC or thereabouts. Okay, that's when this happened. But to put this in the story, the biblical narrative, where it places in biblical history, let's think, think of it like this. Um, if you were journeying with us back in the spring, we went through a study about a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Anyone remember that study we did on Nehemiah? Okay, if you remember, Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem with people out of captivity, and they're rebuilding Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the walls. They rebuilt the temple, okay? This is 150 years before. This is when all of it got destroyed, Okay, you're tracking with me where we're at? They were operating as a kingdom in Israel. The Babylonians came along. God took his hand of protection off of Israel. Babylon besieged the city. That means all the people of Jerusalem are locked inside the city. They've got these armies surrounded them. They're waiting them out. People are starting to, to, to run out of food inside Jerusalem. Finally, they break through the walls. They sack the city they loot the, the temple and they take some of these things out of the temple of God, God's temple there in Jerusalem and they take them back and, and the Babylonians put them in their temple to their gods. And then they start taking people with them. 
So they start taking people out of Jerusalem and start taking them into exile, into captivity, into Babylon. And you notice they started with the cream of the crop. They took people out of the nobility and out of the royalty. And soon there'll be more waves of people they take into exile. Now, what's happening here? If you're someone that's leaving Jerusalem and your, your country's been conquered, the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of David has been destroyed, and now you're going into a foreign land, I mean, everything just changed. Because think about this. For Israel, their whole law is built on a couple things that just got decimated. For starters, the way that Israel operates, their governmental structure, it's not just a, mono- a monarchy, like ruled by a king or a queen. It's not just a monarchy. It's not a democracy, like in, in our country, that's ruled by the people. They are a theocracy. They are, their governmental structure is literally set up to be ruled by God. That's how they're set up. So their king is responsible to make sure all the people of that nation worship God. If the religious festivals aren't happening, it's on the king. The king is responsible. He is, he is just the conduit of God. God is the ruler. There's a homogenous, it's not freedom of worship in the sense that we know it in Israel. They're all worshiping God. That's the way they operate. The whole society is based on their laws and their rules. It's a complete blend. They are a theocracy. So a lot of the laws in the Old Testament are built on that paradigm of a theocracy. Well, what happens if they get conquered, their king gets either executed or exported, and now their king is the king of Babylon, there's just a whole section of the, wall, the, the law that's irrelevant now. Well, what happens if their, part of their law is based on the land that they're living on? This was the promised land that they're giving. They're, they're, they were given by God. This is the, the land that God for generations had prepared them. He put them in there. They had lived there for a thousand years as a kingdom. And so part of their law was every, a couple times a year, we will travel back to Jerusalem and gather all together for the feasts and festivals and fasts a couple times a year. Well, what happens when Jerusalem is destroyed and you can't travel back anymore to participate in these feasts and these festivals? That's another whole section of the law. They're like, I don't even know what to do with that now. Think about the whole sacrificial system, the way that they would worship God. They would bring God these sacrifices, not only corporately together as a nation, but individually they would bring these sacrifices to God. Well, what happens if the temple is destroyed and no longer in operation? You have these exiles going into Babylon. There there was not a contingency plan. They're coming into exile and they're they're starting to say, God, how is this supposed to work now? How do we operate? Like, how are we supposed to be, how are we supposed to worship to you with no temple and no Jerusalem? And and how are we supposed to operate in a culture that's a completely pagan culture? Like, we don't even know what does holiness look like to you? Exile is a huge shift, and all of a sudden, for for all these generations, it was really clean and predictable and prescribed exactly what worship looked like to the Lord, and now they're in a place where it's like, I don't know what it looks like. It's complicated now, but it's going to get more complicated. Look what happens next. Let's look at verse 4. Daniel chapter 1 verse 4 says this. This are the people they've, this first group they've brought into exile. They were youths without blemish, of good appearance, 
and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, let's take a pause here in the story. So they've got this whole group of people that are going to be starting to come in waves into exile into Babylon, but there was these, this first group, they were the cream of the crop. They were from the nobility, the royalty, they were intelligent, they were smart. They were ones they were grooming to stand in front of the king as advisors. So they trained them. They gave them three years of an education out of the king's palace. They gave them three years they're supposed to learn the language language and literature of the Babylonians. They're trying to take the, the best and the brightest and assimilate them into Babylonian culture so they can be among the advisors standing before the king. So we might say, okay, well, man, as far as you know, being a conquered people, that's not a, that's not a bad situation. You eat off the king's table. You spend three years in the Babylonian Ivy Leagues getting the best possible education, you're learning about their literature, their language, that sounds like a pretty good situation. But here's what, if you're an original reader, you would immediately be starting to pick up on something that it's a little bit harder for us to pick up on a couple thousand years removed. And it's an inference at the beginning of chapter, but by the end of the chapter, it becomes very explicit as to what the kind of training they were getting and what they were being trained to do. By the end of the chapter and then throughout the rest of Daniel, they're being trained up, we learn, to be part of this group of advisors to stand before the king. And these advisors are described that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become part of. They become part of this group known by the following terms. They're known as wise men. Well, that's not bad. They're like the intellects. Not exactly. They're known as magicians. And they're known as enchanters. In fact, we're going to look at a verse in a couple minutes where you're going to see that Daniel and these guys are standing with the other magicians and enchanters. You say, okay, well, what does this mean? Let me just read to you straight from um, Old Testament scholars what these terms mean. These, this is the group of people they're training Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be a part of. These are these good, God-fearing Jewish boys that are entering into Nebuchadnezzar's palace and being trained to be a part of this group. This is what they do. The magician, magicians, that's the Hebrew word chartom. Here's how they define it. Here's how, how some historians and scholars have defined it. One describes a magician is really more like a horoscopist. Another says they are soothsayer priests who interpret dreams and omens as well as perform supposed supernatural acts. One lexicon dictionary says it like this. They possess, they're possessors of occult knowledge. They were diviners, astrologers, and magicians. This is the group that they're being trained to belong in. Magicians, enchanters. Let me just define how scholars define this. An enchanter is a conjurer 
an astrologer, not an astronomer studying the skies, an astrologer, one who's interpreting meaning from them. One defines it as an enchanter, a class of persons in, a prof- in the profession of sorcery and magic arts, possibly necromancy and communication with the dead. Wise men, well, that seems like that's the most benign of all the terms. Not exactly. This was a class of people that possessed occult learning. This was a high social religious class that would help interpret various omens. They were court astrologers. One commentary defines this group of people. Their job was this. Their general task was to ward off the effects of threatening omens by performing the appropriate rituals. This often included reciting incantations. This is what these boys, this group that they're being brought into and trained for. Okay, one of, to give you an idea, one um, of the most common practices of this type of fortune telling or witchcraft was something called hepatoscopy. And hepatoscopy, this, this was very common historically and very common in Babylon. What they would do is they would take a lamb or a young goat, they would sacrifice it to an idol, And then they would cut it open and pull out the liver. And they would look at the liver to interpret the fortune or the decision that the king would make. If the liver looked one certain way, then that meant one thing if it looked another certain way. In fact, archaeologists have found clay livers, like in series, that would be used to teach people how to do this. So they'd have a liver that looked one way, well, that means this, and a liver that looks another way, and that means this, and another way. Okay, when you think of these men... In the cl- in classroom setting, in Babylon, it's not just like college level calculus. Okay, the group that they're belonging to, this group of advisors, this is what was expected of them. This is probably what they're being exposed to. Probably what they're being trained to learn how to do. This is a messy situation. They're no longer, it was all nice and clean cut when we lived in Israel and the whole kingdom supposed to honor God. It was nice and neat and clean cut. We knew how to be holy. Now we're living in Babylon. We're living in a pagan culture. It's not so easy. I mean, I don't know how to, there's the sacrificial system. We can't even do that. I don't know how to do the feasts. I don't even know how to operate in this pagan kingdom. And then on top of that, these guys are placed and learning the Babylonian, they're expected to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture and be part of these sorcerers. But that's not, as, as, that's not all about how complicated this was. Did you notice that their names got changed? I want you to think about their names for a second. Uh, their, their Hebrew names, their Jewish names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these are, are beautiful names. Here's what they mean. Daniel means, God is my judge. Hananiah means, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means, who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. I mean, those are beautiful, God-honoring names. Well, they show up in Babylon and the chief eunuch says, nah, I don't think so. Here's going to be your new names. Belteshazzar, you know what that means? O great goddess, protect the king. Shadrach means at the command of Aku, which is their moon god. Meshach means who is like Aku. Abednego means servant of the shining one. Their god Nebo. Their names just got changed from these God honoring names that praise the Lord to declarations of idolatry. Can you imagine 
what kind of position that puts them in? Hey man, remind me your name again. Oh, my name is, oh great goddess, protect the king. My name is, who is like Aku? That's my name. I mean, can you imagine every time they introduced themselves, they must have felt like they were sinning. They can't even say their own names without declaring blasphemy and, and giving praise to an idol. I mean, this is complicated. What do they do? Do they say, you know what? No, thank you. Call me Daniel. I don't answer to anything but Daniel. What do they do? They say, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sitting in your classes. I'm not going through your schools. No, thank you. I'm not doing that. What do they do? I want to jump, head to, jump ahead to the ed, end of this chapter and just get a sense of what God's about to do through them. Daniel 1, let's jump down to verse 17 and we'll stop there for today. Here's what it says. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Listen to this. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you see what just happened there? They decided, okay, God, I have no idea how to operate in this environment. I, I mean, I, I, there's no rule book here. I, I don't know how in the world to operate here. But they, instead of saying, absolutely not, get me out of here, they said, they decided, okay, God, you've placed us here for a reason. And we're going to figure out how to honor you in the midst of this very compromising situation. We're going to figure out how to stand firm and be godly and holy before you. Now, the section that we just skipped over was um, the verses um, eight, 7 through um, verses 8 through 16, You'll, we're going to go back to next week and you're going to see that they draw, draw a line. They drew a line in the sand and they took a stand on something, risked their lives to do it. But here's what you see in this text. It wasn't clear cut. It was messy. It, it's, it, they must have been thinking, man, this is not like Israel. Everything, you know, I, I knew exactly what it looked like to be holy. This is complicated. Like, where do I take a stand? Do I take a stand on my name? Do I take a stand on what class I go to? Do I take a stand and I'm not going to stand before the king and answer those questions? Where do I take a stand? And you're going to see they just, the best they can, they picked, they chose a place to take a stand. But here's what I want just for this morning, what we want to see this morning is it's messy. It's complicated. This is not Israel. This is exile. And here's the beautiful thing in this chapter. God blesses them. He makes them 10 times better in all the subjects. They were like the top four grades. They were the top four ranking people in their school in all the subjects, 10 times better than anyone else. God was with them and he blessed them. Here's what we learned from this passage and it is so encouraging. God didn't just stand back and be like, whoa, that is so pagan. I'm not even, I can't even dabble in that. You, you four figure it out and, and come talk to me when you clean up the situation. That's not what God did. He entered right into the mess with them. 
Let me tell you why that's so encouraging that God went into exile and stepped into the mess with them. Let me tell you why that's so encouraging. I want you to check out this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's found in the New Testament. This is what it says. This is Peter. This is the opening of his letter, and he's writing to Christians. This is New Testament. Look what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, what's that word? Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do you know how, he, how he's describing Christians? He's saying, Christians, you who are in exile, you who are no longer living in a theocracy, you're, the next theocracy that you will live in, it's called heaven where God perfectly rules and and godliness and holiness is perfectly being watched over by God and and it's all simple and clear cut and the lines are easy. He's saying, in the meantime, where are you at? It's like you're in exile where it's messy. Saying, Christian, what this means is that the people in the Bible that we, in the Old Testament, that we probably should relate to the most watching their life, it's guys like Daniel who's living in pagan Babylon or Esther who's in pagan Persia or Nehemiah who's in Persia or Naaman who lives in Syria or Joseph when he lives in Egypt. Like that's the correlation. We're in exile. He's saying it's messy. And what makes it so messy is part of what makes it so messy for the Christian is the stance for Christians in relation to the world is not retreat. How do I get out of the messiness? What Jesus said to us is he says, go into all the world. And Jesus said, here's how I'm going to describe you. You're like granules of salt. You're like salt that I've salted the whole world. And salt in that time period was used as a preservative. He's like, I am dropping salt. It's not, hey, all salt, let's all hide in the salt shaker. He's saying, no, I'm sprinkling you out through the entire world and your presence there will preserve it from decay. But that stance of it's not just, hey, we're in exile, but we're supposed to go into the world, man, it's messy. It's not nice and neat and clean as if we lived in Israel. Man, it's it's messy, It's the Christian cab driver. He says, man, I feel like this is my calling. I mean, this is my job, but I want to be a light here as a cab driver. I'm not only just trying to reach the the other cab drivers and share my faith with them, but man, I have someone that gets in the car with me and gets in my cab all the time, and it's an opportunity for me to share my faith with this person because I I have a captive audience. I mean, they just can't get out of the cab, so maybe I can share my faith with them and and try and be a light to them and, and maybe an encouragement or draw them to the Lord. I mean, what a ministry I have, and every day he prays, and sometimes he's like, man, I, I didn't sense the Lord do anything, but then every now and then he's like, man, the Lord just opened up an awesome conversation. He's like, I am a light in this dark world. And then he shows up to work one day and he gets assigned a cab and he walks up to the cab and he sees the advertisement on the roof is for a strip club. He says, okay, let me see if I get this straight. I'm now trying to be a light to the world. I'm driving a cab around and my cab is going to advertise a strip club to the entire city. So what do I do? Do I quit? I'm not going to drive that cab. I refuse to drive cabs with that kind of advertisement on it. And he walks out. But if every cab dri- Christian cab driver leaves, we have no Christians reaching that industry. Man, it's messy. I don't know. 
It's messy. It's the person that works for a marketing firm. And they say, look, I know how much marketing affects our culture, so I want to go out into the world, and I want to be that voice, that presence in this marketing company that helps bring it back towards truth, towards godliness, and I just want to be a voice there, not just with my coworkers, but influencing this company. And then one day you hear about an account that your marketing firm gets. And this account, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't, I could no more endorse that company as a Christian. There's almost nothing I could endorse less than that company. And then whose lap does that file land on? You're responsible to market for that company. And you walk into your boss and you say, look, I don't know that I'm the best person to market for this company. And the boss says, whoa, whoa, are you second guessing my decision? That's your job. Do your job or find some other job. And you walk back to your office and you have a decision to make. And it's messy. You're saying, look, it's not just I'm working with this company I don't believe in. I'm marketing for that company. I'm making this company look good. I'm trying to draw clients to this company. What do I do? I could just say, no, thank you, and I quit. But then what if all Christians walked out of the marketing world? What would happen? It's messy. It's a school teacher that's a Christian and says, I just, for my personal calling, I feel called to work in the public school system. I want to be a light in that dark world. And they're like, look, I, I pray for opportunities to, to appropriately minister to the other teachers. And, and if I get an opportunity with a parent or a student, I try and take that opportunity to point them to Jesus and point them to God. And I just try and be a, a voice for truth and for goodness. And then all of a sudden, the curriculum gets passed down that you have to teach. You have to instruct something that you can't endorse as a Christian. It's messy. What do you do? Because if all Christian walked out of the public school system, God help us. It's messy. And what makes it even more messy is that Jesus is saying to Christians, I'm not just saying, man, try and survive in the world and retreat whenever you can. He says, no, your default position is not retreat. It's go. Man, you know what this passage is telling us, Christians? Welcome to exile. You know how this uh, encourages us this morning is just to kick off the series. It's something very simply. Maybe you find yourself in the place you work and you say, man, God, am I doing something wrong? The job I'm in, I don't know how to do this. Like I, I don't know how to do this and, and be godly to you. I don't know what to do. I, I don't want to leave because I want to be a godly presence, but I don't know what to do. Should I quit? You know what? Maybe, there, maybe that day will come one day, maybe not, man, but one thing for you to just be encouraged by. It's messy. That's, that's the dynamic of being in exile. Have an expectation that it's not always going to be nice, clean, and obvious and clear when we're going into the darkness of the world. Have an expectation, okay, I'm not doing something wrong. This is complicated. But be encouraged by this. He's going with you into the mess. And he's going to guide you. And he's going to help you make those impossible decisions when it doesn't seem like you have the right to, a, a good decision to make. He's with you. He knows it's messy. He knows you're in exile. And he placed you there. And here's the second thing. You say, look, I, I'm actually in a place where I'm wondering if it's time for me to back out and quit. Is there a time to quit? Absolutely. There's a day and time to, to quit. 
There's a time when you say, I can't do this anymore. I can't be a part of this. But before you do, that day may be now or it may come one day, but before you do, can you pause for a second and just take a time out and remember that you come from a long line of people trying to honor God and go into the dark world that's messy. And he may have sent you into this world and he may say, look, I will help you navigate through this. So maybe before you retreat, that day may come, but maybe before you retreat, you pause and say, God, help me in the midst of this mess because, man, if I'm going to go into the darkness, it's going to be messy. And here's the last thing I want to encourage you. Man, we believe that God might want to powerfully use this series in our church. And so here's a simple application. Join us through this series. Here's some of the things we're going to talk about. Next week, we're going to backtrack and we're going to look at where they, they took a stand. It wasn't an easy stand. It wasn't clean cut and simple, but they took a stand. And we're going to talk about when do you take a stand and how do you take a stand. We're going to, we're going to, as we're going through this series, we're going to talk about how do you use wisdom and discretion? How do you just say, how do you be strategic and yet not hide behind your wisdom when it's time to take a step of faith? We're going to talk about how do you enter in and how do you show love even when sometimes showing love to someone is maybe going to be confused, misunderstood, look like an endorsement, but yet you're called to be a force of love out in the world. We're going to talk about how do you take a stand and do whatever God's placed right in front of you with excellence, even when it's complicated, like I am to be excellent and further a company that I can't endorse all of its pursuits. How do you navigate in there with excellence? And we're going to talk about how, as, as we're wanting our lives to be impacting, what should we expect? How should we expect for what that's going to look like? I think God could do a powerful work as he prepares us, his church, to be sprinkled all through the South Florida community into the messiness that is this dark world that he's called us to. But he's called us to make an impact. And here's what we're going to see. What God did through these four men is he literally impacted the entire globe in their generation. It's powerful. As they took a stand in a very, uncomprom- a very compromising situation and they said, we will find a way not to compromise. But here's ultimately where our hope is. So we serve a God who's not afraid of the mess. Even though he is most holy God, he somehow entered into the mess Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he didn't just stay in heaven and stand back and say, okay, I've got to figure out how to fix humanity from a distance. It's not what he did, is it? Jesus Christ, he put on flesh. He was fully God and fully man. He entered into the mess. He came to die on a cross and to rise again from the dead on the third day. And in that moment, he was paying for all our sins so that we have grace covering over us. through the messiness of our lives. In other words, you might be here this morning and you might be saying, you know, I know I need to reconnect with God, but man, my life is so messy and I'm trying to just kind of clean up my life a little bit before I come back to God. And here's what God's saying. I'm not afraid of your mess. Come to me just how you are right now and let me wash you clean. And for some of you, you may be holding off because you're trying to get right. Start, man, I just got to start doing some right things for a while and maybe in a month or a couple months of being on the right path, then I can come before God. No, come to him now, today. 
Because our forgiveness is through Jesus. Our acceptance is through the work he did on the cross. Not through what we do, but through what he did. So just surrender to Jesus today. And if that's you, I want to just lead you in a simple prayer of surrender to God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? If you're sitting there today and you're saying, you know what, I I just need to surrender. I just need to surrender to God and just in the midst of my mess, just come to him messy and say, God, I just need you to forgive me and wash me clean. And just simply pray this prayer between you and God this morning. Say, just right there in your seat, make these words your words between you and God. Just simply say this. God, thank you for entering into the mess. Thank you for even though you are so holy, accepting me how I am and making me holy through the work of Jesus. Thank you for having a plan to save me. I surrender. I surrender to you today. I want to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.